Hello, one and all. Uh, Peter and Ralph here with a closer look at some of the stories this week. In this edition, we're going to talk about two things. Firstly, we are going to compare uh, uh, the reaction and implications of the Russia-Ukraine war and the Israel-Hamas war. Secondly, uh, we're going to discuss the normalization of Aldi and Lidl. Um, now, before we go into that, um, uh, I feel I've, I've got to tell everyone um, something. I've come to uh, an important stage in life. Um, and I think, I mean, it could be downhill from here. Um, I'm considering buying a Volvo. Um, I've got, got into this, I don't know, I've just got into this, uh, this stage of life and, um, got my, you know, kids are a bit older now. We're all doing different things. So, yeah. So I had to say that because I told Ralph, uh, and he's threatened to tell everyone, um, on this um if i didn't say anything so i thought i'd better get it in there first but anyway there you go in case you're wondering why is this why why is that guy just randomly talking about what car he might buy but anyway yes because i would have said it yeah i would just like to point out that i'm considerably older than you <laughs> and i have never owned a volvo i haven't yeah. even knowingly be close to a volvo shop uh yeah so you know I mean, it happens to some of us, not all of us, obviously. Um, <laughs> but it was like, I don't know, it was a few, like a couple of years ago, I reached another um, important stage in life. Uh, and it was where I bought a, a Black & Decker workmate, um, which was, um, you know, so yeah. But, uh, but you know, but that, but that comes for me after buying a leaf blower and a, and a lawnmower. Uh, so yeah, like I say, important stages in life. Anyway, let's talk about serious stuff so uh in terms of the um reaction and implications of the russia ukraine war and israel hamas war um i think that it has become been interesting to see the the sort of the world's reaction the initial reaction and then subsequent reaction to it um because i think that it would be fair to say um the russia ukraine war created a, a massive shock around the world but i suppose particularly in europe um and whereas it feels to me like israel hamas had a big impact initially but then it seems to have dissipated a bit um but yeah i mean you know and then but then overall um that may well have had a dampening effect of um, the world's reaction to the ongoing Russia-Ukraine war. So anyway, I thought it'd be interesting to talk about the contrast um, in, in the reaction and the implications of those two. Um, and Ralph has got a lot of interesting stuff to say about it. <laughs> well, I don't know about Good that, pressure. but I, I, I'm just fishing for a quote uh, to, to... Yeah, here we are. So uh, Jamie Dimon of JP Morgan has said in response to the developing crisis uh, between uh, well, in the Middle East, the Israel-Hamas war, he said that, quote, geopolitics is now shaping the future of the world in terms of freedom, democracy, food, energy, and immigration. 
And so that is echoing something which BlackRock have recently said. And so we thought we are going to just take a pause and taking a little uh, look, uh, like, like a short look at this, mm. because these general statements uh, coming from various um, leading fund managers and investment banks in the world have also been accompanied by the risk warning that the world may now slide into a recession. So there mm. might be a global recession on the cards. And we were thinking, well, uh, far from being able to elucidate every aspect of this developing and complicated situation, let's just uh, perhaps take a short look at the potential economic repercussions which are in store as a consequence of the developing Israel-Hamas situation and which are, of course, ongoing uh, as consequences of the Ukraine-Russia war. Mm. And just to re re remind our ourselves, I mean, the, the Russia-Ukraine situation, uh, famous last words, but it appears to have been and continues to be more incisive in terms of economic terms uh, for the world than perhaps the Israel-Hamas war is going to be. I'm going to have to sort of, you know, embed my words into all kinds of caveats because, of course, we don't know and geopolitical situations are very difficult to predict. Mm. But the reason that I would actually perhaps offer that as a first general comment is this. Um, the Russian economy is led by the expert of uh, raw material, of, of, of energy in, in the main. But we have two sources of energy here. One is gas and one is oil. In fact, Russia, I believe, is the third largest oil producer in the world after, after the United States and Saudi Arabia. So there's clearly a potent uh, force here in the production of, of global oil. Um, and third, the Ukraine and Russia together are the world's wheat basket. And, and so we have, in addition, a very important uh, basic um, in, ingredients in the making of bread, which is, of course, a staple diet, a staple food diet for most countries. All of this was interrupted and disrupted, not just because um, Russia chose to weaponize wheat, um, perhaps six months eight months into the conflict, but also and importantly because the free world united against Russia in this war and levied material sanctions against Russia. These sanctions were, we all know this, uh, in, in, in terms of a refusal to purchase gas from Russia and oil, but also and importantly to ban the presence of Western companies uh, doing business in Russia. And this had two impacts. One is the debilitating impact of the Russian economy, which of course was the aim of this, but also of course the, 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 the products uh, manufactured by, the com by these companies in the Russian markets were no longer available to these companies and therefore the companies themselves took a hit from this. Uh, and you can see 
how the complicated situation there, the multi-faceted situation had the had to have and did have the negative impact on the world economy as it had turned out to have. So, so that's one <clears throat> uh, situation to comment on. Now, if we look at the Israel-Hamas situation, then it, 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 it perhaps is too simplistic to look at it in this way, but it looks to me as if the main repercussion in terms of, econ of, of the world economy would be a, a cut in the supply of oil and therefore commensurately an increase in the oil price. Now, there are surely going to be some other things which I'm overlooking here, but that appears to be the most obvious first a victim economically in this geopolitical uh, struggle. Some people have suggested that the oil price might go to £150, per barrel, uh, $150 per barrel. I have no idea where this number comes from. It may just be completely alarmist, but given that we are still in the region of $100 now, <clears throat> that might illustrate the potential adverse impact on uh, on industrialized uh, societies from this so the question then is to ask how likely is it that we're going to see these type of um, impacts arising and as ever and as we have done before when we're talking about the russia ukraine situation one needs to delve into this a little bit and look at the geopolitical situation and how it might develop. Now, this is always daunting and is always going to be wrong. And so I'm not going to do this in huge detail, but I just wanted to perhaps make two comments. The first one is that I believe it is easy to see how this struggle, how this war, could ripple out and inflame the entire Middle East. Mm. Easy this might be, but perhaps a view of this nature, which would suggest that this is inevitable, is perhaps, one hopes, in fact, is hopefully too superficial. So that would be the second comment. So back to the first. The easy things we can all see, but I just basically uh, repeat what everybody already knows. We have a impossibly difficult situation for Israel here, who needs to, who has formulated for itself the strategic goal to stamp out the terror organization Hamas, which we know has embedded itself with the civilian population, making strikes against it more difficult, and therefore slowing a military progress which in other circumstances might be more quickly. So the first point is it's not going to be quick. If Hamas can indeed be vanquished by Israel, I think we're going to look at a situation which needs to be described in months, perhaps years, but certainly months rather than weeks from now. As the 
strikes in Gaza are developing, the risk clearly is that surrounding Arab nations might come into the to the to the to the conflict. They may do so by choice, or they may do so because they feel that they cannot actually stand back from this. Because we need to perhaps remember one thing. As complicated as the Middle Eastern situation is, one might be able to simplify it by saying that there are two parties uh, surrounding Israel. One party is sort of an, an octopus um, led by Iran with terror organizations at, at its disposal. One is Hamas, the other one is obviously Hezbollah, which is active in southern Lebanon, and the third one are the Houthis in South Yemen, which are less well known, but they have all been developed by Iran over the last years into a well-functioning, well-equipped uh, militia of, of, of fighting force, terror organization. So that's one um, block, and you might add to this block Iraq and Syria. And the other block are the Sunnite uh, Arab countries um, like Saudi Arabia, UAE, uh, Egypt, um, who have become over the decades more moderate and more inclined to seek a rapprochement with Israel, Egypt, uh, in the peace agreement, which was struck a long time ago. Um, uh, of, of course, Jordan as well. I've missed out on Jordan here. Jordan with, 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 with a country with which Israel is now in, um, has um, struck a peace accord and the Abraham Accords would have meant that Saudi Arabia was very close to recognizing Israel as a state. So basically, you might say two blocks. Simplified, I know, but let's look at it in a simplified way. Otherwise, we never get going to get to the end of this. So two blocks. One is Iran with Hamas, Hezbollah, and the Houthis as terror organizations at their disposal, plus Iraq and Syria. And the other one are the other countries which are mentioned. Now, why is this important? Because the easy thing to say is, well, Hezbollah obviously also has a fight, an, an interest to fight Israel, and they might actually take this as an excuse to do so. Now I'm going to point number two, when I said it may hopefully be not quite as easy as it meets the eye. Because Hezbollah might well wish to do this, but I believe Hezbollah will still remember the last time that it, in, that it attacked Israel, which was, I think, in 2002, from, from memory, when Israel... Um, reacted in a very potent military, military response, <clears throat> the consequence of which is that Lebanon to this day still has a fragile economy. And I believe that Hezbollah does not necessarily want to risk this again. If Iran tells them to move, they will have to move. The Iran are the paymasters. But if Iran still stands back from it, then this is not necessarily going to happen. The other force which is in the region, which is going to perhaps 
or one well, which has so far been an inhibitor to a further escalation of uh, of um, uh, military activity is, of course, the United States, who I believe has two carrier groups in the Mediterranean, is now sailing a, a submarine into the region and has various other capabilities in in the Gulf. And so, what I'm getting to with this hopefully still brief although it's already getting complicated i understand this hopefully still brief overview of the parties and how they interact is to point out that we are a business podcast so we're talking again about the economic potential fallout here unless the conflict widens and unless all these current fringe play players are going to come into this conflict as full-blown uh, combatants, it is unlikely that the oil price is going to soar to these alarmist levels which some parties have indicated. Um, if you look at the oil producing countries in the region, then Saudi Arabia is by far the biggest. They are the second largest oil producer in the world and they are the largest in the Middle East at around 11, 12 billion, uh, sorry, 12 million barrels per day. And then you have the middle ground of countries which all produce around four to five bar million barrels per day. And this is Iraq, Iran and some others. So if the conflict widens, you might expect the US to levy new sanctions or further sanctions against Iran and new sanctions against Iraq, impeding a capacity of around 9 million barrels per day in oil production versus Saudi Arabia, which is at around the same level. So that is the risk. But unless these countries, I think, enter the conflict in an open admission that they are now active combatants in the conflict, I would believe that is a an escalation, an escalation in terms of the um, the oil price per barrel, which is not necessarily going to happen. And if that is not going to happen, then we are unlikely to going to get a world recession. So these are some comments, and I hope nobody is going to remember that I said this in, in a month's time when, when we're all going to um, see that the oil price has in fact exploded. But uh, I, I'm sort of offering this not necessarily as a plausible um, as a, as a probable analysis, I'm just offering this as a, another view which mm. one might look at and try on, um, and 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 just see that there is um, an alternative development, at least possible, uh, an alternative to the the obviously. Uh, potentially catastrophic development, which yeah. which uh, which meets the eye. Yeah, no, fair enough. I mean, <clears throat> I guess the thing is, is this? Um, it does it does illustrate actually the business case for what Goldman Sachs has been recently doing, uh, which is you know they recently set up <laughs> that institute yes. um, for uh, advice, you know, doing sort of geopolitical advice i mean this is the thing is that it is getting so complicated and that 
maybe established um, links and relationships between countries mm-hmm. are changing. And that means that, you know, uh, there's a lot of uncertainty. And it also means that there has to be, um, you know, people want advice. I mean, you know, there is all this uncertainty. Yeah. Things that sort of received wisdoms or received, sorry, received wisdom is not necessarily correct anymore. Um, and that's why mm. you need new input. You know, it's not enough to, I mean, yes, of course, you've got to look to the past um, in order to try to, you know, to help you to um, predict what may come in the future. But at the same time, things are changing. And, you know, and what you might have thought even two, three years ago, um, it may may well be out of date. So I think well, the more... Well, indeed. <clears throat> yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, so, sorry, I was just saying, uh, absolutely. I mean, these geopolitical developments are, of course, massively important. And mm. It is actually interesting to look at specifically the Middle East in this in this um, framework, in this context, because it is clear, I think, also to the economies there that their current source of wealth is not going to be there forever. Mm. Saudi Arabia is the biggest oil producing country in the region, mm. is sourcing virtually all of their economic wealth from the sale of oil. Once oil disappears, or once uh, industrialized countries have moved on to attempt to largely replace oil with other forms of energy, this source of income will dry up and therefore needs to be replaced by something else. In other words, it would have to be in the interest of these countries as well, if they are planning for the long term, to increase the diversification of their industry, of their economy by sectors. Mm. And it follows that that can only really be done if you live in peace with your neighbors. Now, this has been the case for a long time. I mean, most of the wars, unfortunately, are being fought when these countries surrounding Israel decide that it is time to attack Israel. That basically is the uh, post-war history of Israel. But again, uh, there has been peace with Egypt for a very long time. There have, has been peace with a, a very highly um, sort of moderating um, Jordan for a long time. And Saudi Arabia has recently moved towards recognizing Israel. If you look at some interceptions of commentary, which the IDF has, uh, the Israeli Defense Force, the IDF has recently had from um, Hamas terrorists, It is interesting to note that Hamas has in fact said that it um, staged these these dehumanized atrocities, which we have seen, explicitly for the reason to scupper that particular process of rapprochement against Israel. And so, in other words, if that is their clear and now documented intention, then at least it is possible that after the time that the that Israel decides that it has contained the threat um, it, to a sufficient level from Hamas, the uh, ongoing rapprochement 
might actually be restarted. And that would be my hope, because because for, 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 the, for the reason that Hamas explicitly and clearly has said that its attack was for the reason of scuppering the peace process. And mm. so all these um, in, in, intertwined elements of self-interest should one hope um, mm. uh, weigh, weigh, weigh the scales on the side mm. of... Uh, of um, productive, uh, peaceful coexistence, at least between nation states, at least between the Sunnite nation states, which hopefully then would outweigh the more, uh, where the ideological interests uh, which are domiciled in Iran and its various yeah. helper organizations. Yeah, absolutely. So there we go. I mean, I think that the, um, obviously this is going to continue, you know, obviously this looks like this is going to continue for quite some time. That's what we think at the moment, or you know, mate. That's what mate, you know, Ralph. Obviously, that was brilliant, um, Ralph. You know, to to hear um, to to hear all that. Um, so we're going to move on to the um, the second uh, topic of conversation, which is a bit lighter <laughs> in in content, um, and I call that the normalisation of Aldi and Lidl. Now, I do think it's quite interesting how. Um, I mean, we saw this week that. Uh, you know, there was there was a, an article about how um, the middle classes are increasingly shopping at Aldi and Lidl, and it it just got me thinking that you know they're often referred to Aldi and Lidl in the same breath, and re often referred to as the German discounters. Mm -hmm. um, equally, you know, the supermarkets in the UK have for a very very long time um being referred to as the big four um and they consist of now let's hopefully i can get this so um uh so tesco sainsbury's asda and morrison's mm -hmm. now the, the thing is i think it was last year that aldi actually overtook morrison's um and you just sort of think well is there going to be a big five a big six um are is you know, is this the end of it or are they going to exclude the Germans? I mean, you know, and have a big three. I mean, what are they going to do? Um, but the thing is, is it seems to me that over time, um, Aldi and Lidl had, um, there was some degree of stigma um, over time. And, mm -hmm. you know, basically, um, I guess initially people were thinking that, you know, if you if you shop there, then maybe your life wasn't going as well as perhaps you, um, you know, might have been hoping potentially. Um, and so, you know, there's a bit of stigma attached to that. Um, but I think in a way it's kind of turned now and maybe there's almost like some sort of reverse snobbery at work um, in the sense that, well, look, look, you know, I'm, I know I've I've heard about this cost of living crisis on the television um and uh and so I'm I'm doing something about it I'm going and shopping in in Aldi and Lidl um but I also think that we because of this I don't think I mean are they actually going to be seen as the German discounters for that much longer or in, in actual fact they're just going to be just supermarkets hmm. um because 
you know, I mean, I, I, I go to, I go to both. Um, I mean, I go, I suppose I go to predominantly Sainsbury's, but also Aldi and Lidl as well, every now and again, depending actually, you know, on specific items and but actually booze, very, you know, very good for booze and things and the middle aisles, of course. Um, yes. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't see so much um, stigma at all. Um, I think they're moving towards normalization. Um, and if that's the case, if they're moving towards normalization, maybe they're going to just continue to increase market share. But um, what, what do you think, Ralph? Yes. I mean, first of all, perhaps uh, this may surprise you, but I am actually German. <laughs> Yeah, I must say I thought French, perhaps. But, uh, mm, yeah. yeah, cool. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and not only that, I'm also I was also born in in the Ruhr Valley in mm. Germany, and the Ruhr Valley is basically working class uh, country. It's the working class region. We're talking steel workers and etc. And this used to be the traditional home of German uh, in, in the 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 Wirtschaftswunder after the Second World War, that is where the uh, coal industry was, and this was uh, one of the engines of the economic miracle, so, so described. Mm. Um, anyway, the reason I say that is because um, we, of course, had Aldi, and not so much Lidl, I think that came later, but Aldi certainly was a staple diet of my my environment. And and my mum basically said to me, I'm not going to be seen dead in Aldi because she was a farmer's daughter from the north uh, of, of Germany. And my my grandparents ran a working farm. And so they were all about uh, produce and local produce, etc. And so my mum was definitely snobbish there. And so whenever I went into an Aldi supermarket, supermarket, let me be German here for a moment. Yeah. So an Aldi supermarket in at, at home, <laughs> I had to sort of do this without my mum knowing. <laughs> and I must say, I mean, it didn't really present very well. I mean, they still had the cardboard boxes where they got the stuff delivered. They were just yeah. basically chucked into the aisles and it all looked very down market indeed. Now, these times have completely passed. I mean, I don't know what they look like in, in Germany, but yeah. in England, these are, as you say, these are just supermarkets. They look mm. uh, perfectly, uh, they, they look fantastic. I mean, they're airy, they um, have the uh, various items on, on display, on you know, separate display desks, etc. I mean, it looks actually I mean, they're not, they're very not inviting. I would say they're not super airy. I wouldn't say. Well, certainly no, ones not, I've been. To. I mean, so airy, no, large spaces. Because mm, the thing is, they are smaller. Generally speaking, their footprint is a lot is smaller than your kind of larger, you know, Sainsbury's, Tesco's, etc. They don't have as much stuff. As a, as a result, they don't have as much stuff. I mean, I think I've said I might have said this before on a previous podcast that you know, if you are, let's say, deciding to. I don't know, make a Thai meal from scratch, um, you know, and you're going to make the curry paste and this, that and the other, then you're probably not going to be able to get all your ingredients from Aldi or Lidl. You'll be able to get a lot, but not quite enough. Mm -hmm. And for that, you might have to go to a larger uh, place. But yeah, I mean, the thing is, though, they are, they're okay. I mean, they're not, you know, it, they, they still do have the, the boxes, 
um, out there. Maybe thinking about it slightly more so than than other super, than other supermarkets. But yeah, it's not like they're just piling it up and it. You no, know, exactly. It's it's not that bad. Um, but yeah. Yeah, I, I may have had the um, my my memory from Germany uh, in 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 mind when I made the comparison. Hmm. Um, but so so yes, I'm finding it interesting to see that now the middle classes are drifting towards Aldi and Lidl. Hmm. Um, so let me just share some statistics here with you. Somebody did a survey and they. They did uh, 41 grocery items, like a basket of 41 grocery items, and they compared the cost of that across supermarkets. Hmm. And so I'm going to read this off, which is why my gaze is going to go off screen. And Hmm. so we have Aldi and Lidl at around 72 quid. I mean, that's basically Hmm. the same number. So Aldi and Lidl are pretty much the same price point here. Hmm. And then we have the next group, which is Sainsbury's, Tesco, Asda, and in fact, Morrison's, although Morrison's is a little bit uh, set apart. But certainly mm-hmm. those four, which you mentioned as, as, mm-hmm. as the traditional big four, mm. they are the sort of traditional middle-class supermarkets. And their price points are at, a, at an average 80, 81, 82 quid. Mm. So that's about 10% more expensive than Aldi and Lidl. Mm. Uh, apologies for the German pronunciation there of these two. The only words I can say without an yeah. accent, so this is my moment. I just remember actually when, when um, you know, back in it, when we were working at, at, uh, at, at that place, um, <laughs> the, um, I do remember there was one guy, I think, I don't know if he was half French or something, but he always said um, L'Oreal. Oh, I can't say L'Oreal. And we were all oh, L'Oreal, L'Oreal. And, um, and, you know, it was always, uh, it always caused a, a ripple of uh, I don't know, excitement and mirth um, because he pronounced it correctly. Um, whereas, of course, everyone Which is else. It's funny, didn't. isn't it? I have, yes. the same, I have the same anecdote from the arcane world of insurance. There was something. Yeah at some point, which was a regulatory requirement to actually have a reserve for mm-hmm. interest rate increases. Doesn't matter. I'm not going to go into it. Nobody worry. But the thing was called, it's a Ger- it was a German regulation. So the thing was called Zinszusatzreserve. Nice. And, and of course, I mean, you can only possibly pronounce this if you've trained yourself in Germany as a native mm. speaker for decades to pronounce <laughs> such a word. Yeah. And of course, I, I don't know, nobody was able to, was going to be able to pronounce this. And so I said, ah, well, the Zinszusatzreserve <laughs> sort of forced people to say it. Nice. And they would say something like Zinszusatzreserve, <laughs> sounding yeah. decidedly nice. um, inebriated. Excellent. Splendid. Back to the supermarket. <laughs> yes. So we have the situation that Alden Lidl uh, at the bottom of the pack here with 72 quid mm. in the basket. Then the four, then the grade four at a price point of 82, which is 10% mm. higher. And then leading the pack is Ocado and Waitrose. And one, one presumes Marks and Spencer as well, uh, but they're not here on my list. And Ocado mm. and Waitrose come in at, Ocado at 88, Waitrose is 92, let's call that 90. And so we have another 10% uh, mm. um, uh, distance there. So 
I don't think it's overly simplifying. If I just basically analyze the supermarket uh, sector in the UK from a price point of view of saying that it consists of two of three groups. One is the traditional discounter group. The next one, 10% more expensive, are the traditional big four. The top group, 10% more expensive still, is Ocado, which is, by the way, Marks and Spencer these days, and mm. Waitrose. Mm. Um, and it is now interesting to see that the middle classes, I mean, that's the news flow we're having here, that the middle classes are drifting towards Aldi and Lidl. Now, the middle classes are, of course, those people who have traditionally shopped at mm. the big four. Yeah. And if we're seeing that there is an average price difference of 10% per average shopping basket, then it follows that we have now been in the throes of inflation for so mm. long that a 10% reduction in your weekly shop is enough for the still reasonably affluent middle classes to identify that as a desirable saving. Mm, mm. And, and and so looking at it from this point of view, I'm sort of turning this news flow around a little bit now and, and using it as evidence of where we are in terms of the economic situation in the UK. We all know it ain't great. I and mean, we were talking all the time about inflation and the cost of mortgage. But another very important item in the household budget is, of course, your weekly grocery shop. Mm. And there we can now see, I think, that there is a clear trend towards what used to be called the discount supermarkets. And to take your point up, it is very likely that these guys are just going to reinvent themselves as very good supermarkets because stuff is cheaper. Mm. Now, the economic malaise is not going to last forever. Mm. And so one wonders whether it would be very interesting to see what the strategy of these guys is going to be. I mean, if indeed we can see that they are now attracting customers which are traditionally more at home in, in the big four, it will be interesting to see whether they can retain these customers when the grocery shop uh, bill comes down with inflation mm. and whether they are able to use this particular time in the economic cycle as an so-called so like like an entry point in, in into into a more established mm. ranking of supermarkets and lose that particular um, attribute of mm. being the discounters mm. i mean i i have to say if you if you if you you know think that the what they sell is kind of the same mm -hmm. um i mean okay the main difference between as i've said before is between for me in terms of shopping at aldi and lidl versus the others is that the others generally bigger therefore have more stuff um mm. therefore you can do everything in one in one shop I think if you are trying to be economical, it may mean that you go to Aldi or Little first to get the stuff off your shopping list, and then go to one of the others mm -hmm. to get the uh, to get the stuff you couldn't get. Um, you know, maybe you know that that can that can work, but 
I think there's another thing at play as well. I mean, recently I went, I went to the Lake District and um, used to go there a lot. Um, uh, uh, but uh, there's a there's a supermarket up there called Booths, which is often um, nicknamed the Waitrose of the North. Um, those booths are not big. Um, they are not big. They, but there's there's like um there's like a homeliness about them. You know, they feel warm. They feel, you know, you've got like these displays. I mean, there there was uh, there was some potatoes. Um, I saw in a in a bag, like a, you know, like a sack, and it said freshly dug today. You know, um, and you know, you went to the deli counter and it was like local farm produce or something. Now, I wonder whether, you know, once middle classes as it were have been i always hate using that but you know have mm. been tempted in one of the ways to maybe keep them there and or attract more is to not necessarily sell different stuff but it's just to make the environment a bit nicer mm-hmm. and i think that if you did if they did that i think that they could really make quite a dent in because what you could do maybe what you could do then if you go there the stuff you don't get get it online you know um yeah i mean i do that sometimes so like for instance i know this is going to be so boring but i'll say anyway because i i am thinking of buying a volvo after all the the is that um you know like i make i i like you know japanese curry right so katsu uh, katsu curry and um generally speaking in japan you know when you make it at home you use curry blocks right so you get them it looks like a massive chocolate bar mm. you break off the bits and you put in you, you know you could put you know you put the hot water in i mean i i do various extra bits and pieces as well you know um but but actually you know you need japanese curry powder um mm. and it's different from indian curry powder for instance so but you can't get that anywhere you, you know so i just got it on got it on amazon so mm-hmm. like i say for instance if you if i suppose you have to be a bit more organized but you know you go to do your you you could get all the things that you know that you can't get at aldi and Lidl, and that you get the stuff that you do know you you get them there anyway so yeah. i don't know i mean i i think the way forward for them is to improve the um the environment and i and i think if they just do that which will cost money, but it will last. If they improve that, I think that they'll be able to hang on to the customers that they've that have been tempted in. I reckon that they need. It, I think they should do that. Yeah. Well, it's very interesting to see where this is going to go. But your your point about getting your staple diets <clears throat> at uh, Aldi, Lidl. Mm. And then, but just basically buying the rest from Amazon, that that makes some sense because obviously also there's a time expense here. Mm. I mean, you have to physically go to the supermarket and then whatever you don't find there, mm. well, you'd have to go physically to some other supermarket. I mean, how much mm. time do you have? So mm. if you then supplant that from online and it can't be Ocado because obviously Ocado only works with Marks and Spencer mm. and you need to be a client. And mm. so Amazon is it still called Amazon Fresh or Amazon Groceries yeah, or something? Yeah, I mean, they do. Yeah, I mean, so they have they have agreements with yeah. various. In fact, I think they were talking to Waitrose recently as well, actually. 
from the upward, so, yeah. But of course, also what you can do is you can go to the Harrods food halls. <laughs> of course. Of course, there's that. Can you Where just you... imagine that, though? That's your weekly shop. You say, well, I, I do half of it at Aldi, um, but then the other half that I yes. don't get, I actually go to i always find that harrods food hall has everything i need exactly i mean what i i didn't find my cointreau infused goose liver pate at aldi this day to yeah. today they were out for some reason so i got to the harrods food halls and got it there yeah nice good well, well anyway so... i think we'd better stop on that note but uh thank you very much indeed for your insight as always um <laughs> ralph for this week um and to the insight to your shopping habits, of course. Um, yes. So uh, anyway, but I'll, we'll leave it there. So thank you very much, everyone. Um, have a great time, uh, enjoyments in whatever you do um, <laughs> at the moment outside yeah, listening to this. And uh, and uh, yeah, we'll be back again very soon. Absolutely, we hey, will thank be. You. Thanks for listening, and see you at Harrods. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Bye.